this morning, if you will, turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 3. I want us to take a look today at John the Baptist and his insistence on why we need repentance. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. If you're able to stand, let us stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you, Lord, for your word. And this morning as we gather to worship, Father, we just ask that your spirit would be in this place, that you would cause us to focus on your voice. As we read your word, as we think about your word, as we seek to apply what we see here and what we hear from you, God, direct every step of that. As your servant John the Baptist proudly proclaimed, we are in need of washing. And dear God, it is only through your Holy Spirit that you purge us, that you make us clean. And so God, this morning I pray that you would teach us what that looks like, what that means to be washed clean of our sin through confession of our sin and then repentance and turning from our sin and facing the salvation and the mercy that you give us and the grace through Jesus Christ. Love us this morning, dear God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. How many people took a bath last night? Or this morning? There was a time when I think it was uh, you only took a bath on Saturday night whether you needed it or not, if you've ever heard that old phrase, right? That comes from a time when uh, the convenience of indoor bathrooms and heat and hot water and all those things, you, you, would, you didn't really want to take a bath in the dead of winter for fear of catching pneumonia, so you just bathed once a week whether you needed it or not on Saturday night so that on Sunday you were clean coming into God's house. But I think our modern times we see the need uh, for sanitation and cleanliness a little bit differently than what our generations in past used to see. Uh, doesn't mean that we're better, just means that we're cleaner. Well, at least on the outside. John the Baptist here, I think, in this passage is pointing to a greater need here in his ministry of the need for a moral cleansing, not something just from the outside, because we can clean the outside of the cup, according to Jesus, but it's the inside of the cup that we ignore, and we see the need there is greater than the need outside of us. 
Matthew chapter 3 continues here looking at the calling of John the Baptist and his ministry to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what we looked at last week in the first three verses. Uh, John the Baptist is now called into ministry. He is proclaiming a very bold ministry of preparation for the coming of the king because the kingdom of heaven is now. Today we're going to look at chapter, uh, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 3. And let's understand a little bit more about what John the Baptist is doing. He's laying out why repentance is reasonable. I want to argue here that when we look here in John in Matthew chapter 3, that John the Baptist here in, in verses 4 through 10, he is describing exactly why repentance is needed. It's more than just him shaking his finger and shaking his fist and declaring boldly the need for repentance. Now he, we're going to see here from the go, Matthew's gospel that John the Baptist is describing why repentance is necessary. See, the reasons that we should not run from God's judgment. He's clearly declaring here that there is judgment at foot here. There is a, a judgment coming, and we must repent because the kingdom of heaven is here, and wrath and judgment are, are coming. And the reason that we must be aware of this wrath and this judgment is because all hands are filthy who trust in tradition over faith in Christ. And this is the ministry of John the Baptist. He is pointing out rightly that the traditions of Judaism, of the Jewish leaders, of putting their faith in their tradition and in their inheritance as children of Abraham is causing them to be filthy and morally corrupt and in need of salvation. And so he's calling even his kinsmen his fellow Jews to repentance. And we're going to look here at why is that, why is that odd? Why is that unusual? I don't know about you, but I mean, in, in our modern context and in the tradition of the church, uh, messages of repentance are part of the rich heritage of the church. I was sharing this week with some of my students uh, where I teach of my fond memories as a child of going to some good old-fashioned tent revivals in the summertime where you have the sawdust on the ground underneath the tent and in the middle and inside the tent the temperature felt like 175 degrees because they wanted you to understand the heat of hell (laughs) so that you would come running to the altar I have those fond memories. My grandfather, rest his soul, poured into me in ways that I, to this day, I'm so grateful and I'm seeing more and more of why he poured into me at a young age. He would take me to these missionary Baptist tent revivals and he would actually, more than that, more than just causing me to feel like I was guilty of sin at seven years old, he he would actually take time and sit down with me. He taught me how to read scripture. He would sit down with me with Bible and we would just sit. We had a cabin. I'm I still own the cabin in Southwest Virginia, in the mountains of Southwest Virginia. And we would sit in that cabin and he would have a Bible and I would have a Bible. And he taught me, let's read the Psalms together. And he would read a, a verse and I would read a verse and he would read a verse and I would read a verse. And so all of that love and compassion that he poured into me, even when I went to the Hellfire and Brimstone tent revivals, I know there was love in there. 
We're, we're used to that tradition of preaching repentance and coming to salvation because judgment is at hand. This is what John the Baptist is doing. He's calling out very clearly the need for a, a purification because our souls are so corrupt. John the Baptist here is one of these guys in the Old Testament. I mean, he, he clearly here in Matthew chapter 3 is the stereotypical Old Testament prophet. John the Baptist appeared to be one in need of a bath himself. Look at how he is dressed and how he's described here in verse 4. Now, John wore a, a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. So, it, so you have to kind of have the picture here, this wild and woolly uh, hermit-type man who lives in the wilderness. When you would see him, you would clearly not see him as the cleanest man that there was. He was very uncivilized in his appearance and uncivilized in his actions and uncivilized in his diet. He wore a garment of camel hair. Now, that could not be very comfortable. <laughs> Probably smelled a little bit, All right? Definitely not the wool or the, or the cotton or the linen of the day. And, you know, they, they would make a lot of garments out of wool because clearly sheep were a, a, a major source of income. He wore a garment made of camel hair. That would be very rough. He wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was unusual of eating locusts and wild honey. Now, we see this, we connect this with John the Baptist, but if you turn to 2 Kings chapter 1, you're going to see a very similar description here of another wild prophet. 2 Kings chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. And this is talking about as we enter, as we're introduced into Second Kings chapter one, we're looking at King Ahaziah, who is clearly in rebellion against the Lord. Uh, this this King Ahaziah is sick, and he's instead of coming to the priest and coming to God and asking for mercy and for healing, he actually sends for the pagan priests of Baal. And we look down here in Second Kings chapter one, verse seven. One of the servants of the king coming back to the king reporting. He said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah, the Tishbite. So not only is John the Baptist seen as the prophesied return of Elijah, as Jesus indicates, if you look even a little bit deeper, even into the Old Testament context, man, John the Baptist sounds like a lot like the way Elijah started his ministry. He was this wild and woolly man of God who spoke, but he was rough around the edges, you know, wore that camel hair suit and had that belt around his waist and he prophesied things that came true to the point of even bringing fire down upon the armies. This is the thing about a prophet. When a prophet speaks, a genuine prophet of God, a genuine prophet of God is speaking God's words directly and it comes true. We know this from Deuteronomy chapter 18, that if someone claims to be a prophet, 
and what they declare does not come true, we are to cast them out as a, as a, a charade, as, a, as fraud, as they are not a prophet. John the Baptist here, clearly the last of the prophets, whatever he declares must come true because he's, he's God's mouthpiece. He is God's servant. John's message is bold. John's lifestyle is simple. And it's a message of moral purification. It's a message of, of coming to be clean. Not only is, there nece- is it necessary to wash the cleanse, the outside of our bodies, what John is declaring here is that there is a message of repentance, a need to purify and cleanse the soul. And here John the Baptist's message of purification is on display. Now, this message of purification by John the Baptist, many would argue, is very similar to the traditional Jewish cleansing rites. When we look into the book of Leviticus and we read all of the different laws of whenever a woman gives birth to children, in Leviticus chapter 12, there is a specific rituals that she must go through before she is accepted back into the congregation. Likewise, whenever uh, a Gentile or someone outside of the Jewish faith would be converted, and that was very common in the Old Testament, it's very common uh, up until this time of even John the Baptist preaching, that there would be Gentiles who, who desired to convert to Judaism. There was a ritual that these outsiders must go through, a self-cleansing. They would self-baptize themselves and wash themselves clean before they were acceptable to the priest. But if you were born into the Jewish tradition... You were, it was not necessary for you to go through this cleansing ritual. It was those from the outside coming in. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament as the Mosaic law is established. Whenever Gentiles would want to come and be part of God's people, they were welcomed in under certain circumstances and they would have to cleanse themselves of the impurities of the Gentile nature in order to come into God's people. John the Baptist here, what he's doing in one way is similar to that, but notice what is different with John the Baptist here. Just as the Gentiles or the outsiders must self-baptize or self-cleanse, who is John the Baptist preaching to here? He's not preaching to Gentiles or outsiders. He's preaching to his own. He's preaching to those in the Jewish tradition, those who kept the law. They would never have been expected to come and cleanse themselves because they were automatically pure in the eyes of God because they carried the bloodline of Abraham. So you see how John the Baptist's ministry in one way was familiar, but in another way he was radical calling all of his neighbors, the Jews, to come and be baptized. You can imagine how that would ruffle some feathers. Notice how even in our churches today, if we were to declare that if you are a church member, if you have been a church member for 40 years and you've been walking with Christ for 40 years, guess what? All of a sudden, you're you're filthy and you're in need of baptism? How would they respond? 
Notice that's what's happening here with John the Baptist. Verse 4, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sin. Verses 5 and 6, in that context, it, that, that really shows how out of place this ministry really was. Why would the people from Jerusalem and Judea need to be baptized? Why would their sins need to be purified this way? Because they had the Mosaic law. Their sins were apparently atoned for whenever the priest would sacrifice in the temple. Why would they feel a need to come out to the river and practice something that Gentiles did? The other thing that's a little bit different here is whenever Gentiles or outsiders would come into uh, the, the children of Israel, into Judaism, their baptism was self-administered. They would actually give themselves a ritual cleansing. What's different here? They're coming to the River Jordan, and John the Baptist is the one who is baptizing. He's the one who is declaring their sins, for, uh, that, uh, declaring that their sins have been confessed and that they would be baptized. John the Baptist does not declare forgiveness. He's only declaring repentance. And so John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, not as a declaration of forgiveness. That's a very important thing to remember. We're going to compare that next week when we get into chapter and verses 13 through 17. I want us to compare Jesus's baptism with some other un, uh, continuations of John's baptism. We'll compare that next week. But you see what's going on here? Just as Gentiles and outsiders were initiated into the Jewish tradition, what John the Baptist is doing is he's calling all sinners, including his fellow kinsmen, the Jews, to come into an initiation rite through repentance before the Lord. Notice this. So this helps us kind of understand exactly what the purpose of baptism is. Now, the, the passage that we opened up today in our call to worship that Joe so eloquently uh, read and spoke and then prayed over, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Turn with me there. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. As Isaiah's prophecy it begins... The wickedness of Judah must be declared. This is something important when it comes to repentance and forgiveness of sins. Yes, awareness of our sin and confession of our sin is necessary. Like we looked at last week, that is still not the same as repentance. Confession is part of the process. But notice what Isaiah says here, beginning in verse 14. Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. These are the words of God speaking through His servant Isaiah 
God, this right here gives you evidence that there are times, no matter how much we plead to God, no matter how much we do the right thing, no matter how many rituals we go to, God has the right to refuse it because He knows the heart of the one who is going through the confession or the declaration or the action. God is not necessary. God is not interested so much in what we do as in who we are. Look here in verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. I mean, cease to do evil. <laughs> Remove the evil from your eyes, verse 16. Doesn't that sound like repentance? <laughs> turning from evil ways, turning from your sinful desires. Remove that. Cease it. Stop it. Verse 17, learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Verse 18, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. I love that. (laughs) Come now. Let us reason, says the Lord. That, That tells me right there that this repentance that we are called to follow, this repentance that we're called to do, it is a reasonable thing in the eyes of the Lord. It is not something that is just blind. It is not something that you do without thinking. It's not something that you must do or else. It is something that God is saying it is reasonable for you to come and repent. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. And here's the reasonableness of it. And here's the mercy that God shows. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Notice here in verse 18 of Isaiah chapter 1, the imagery here of cleansing. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Literally turning the color of the wool. Your sins are a stain and repentance and obedience to the Lord. He grants forgiveness and all of that is clean. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Wow. The imagery there shows the fruit of repentance. The imagery there shows the result of the the, the cleansing of the soul. And only God Himself can cause that to happen. Only God Himself can bring uh, conviction through the Holy Spirit. And through that conviction of the Holy Spirit, can God Himself only wash us clean through the blood of His Son. Only God's mercy can make one clean. So this call from Isaiah chapter 1 is a call to cleanliness. Amen? Now let's see, let's see what Ma- how Matthew uses this with John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. Go back to John, uh, Matthew chapter 3. We understand that all of the people of Jerusalem and Judea were coming out to John the Baptist, being baptized by him, confessing their sins. So the Jewish tradition would have clearly emphasized and understood spiritual cleansing. But we look here in verse 7. 
But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, he warned you to flee from the wrath to come. So right there in verse 7, we see clearly if people from Jerusalem and Judea and all the surrounding region were coming around, clearly in the midst of that, you might have some religious leaders coming out, possibly out of curiosity, possibly out of let's go look and make sure that there's no heresy going on, because that was their job. I don't know if perhaps part of it, you could have had some Pharisees and Sadducees come um, in the spirit of Nicodemus who actually come with a genuine, sincere desire to understand God's love. It's possible it's in there too, but we see John the Baptist's response. It's clearly not very loving. So I would argue that these Pharisees and Sadducees he's talking to, he didn't have a lot of confidence in them. He calls them broods of vipers. (laughs) These Pharisees and Sadducees, they clearly were not outsiders. They clearly were not Gentiles. They were clearly not in need in their eyes of an initiation ritual because they, they inherited the blessings of being the seeds of Abraham. Why would they need to come and be cleansed like Gentiles welcoming into the family of God? Why would they need to come? Because they already have the blessing of, of being a part of God's family. They already are, are under the law of Moses. They already are seen as righteous because they are under the seed of Abraham. Why would they need to come? And so John the Baptist here in verse 7, I think, <laughs> sums it up pretty clearly. I mean, his, his response here kind of sets the tone of the atmosphere, right? Uh, outsiders are welcome. But why are you here? You're not an outsider. <laughs> You declare that you're not an outsider, but his response here really kind of puts them in their place. In, in, in actuality, these self-righteous religious leaders were true outsiders. They were just blind to the truth. You brood of vipers, literally children of snakes. That's literally how you can translate that, you children of snakes. I mean, that's a twist of words there because they claim to be children of Abraham. They claim to be children of God. Yet he's saying, no, the truth is you're children of snakes because you're here for the wrong motive. Perhaps you're only here to catch me in some heresy so that you can crucify me. Perhaps you're only here because you're passing judgment on the others who are here being baptized. I can see the Pharisees and Sadducees there with a scroll taking down names. Can't you? And John the Baptist, he sees the truth and he calls them out. You claimed Pharisees and Sadducees, you religious zealots, you claim to be on the inside, but in reality what John the Baptist is declaring is you're really on the outside and you need this repentance. You need this baptism just like everybody else, but your heart is not right who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. So there in verse 7, there is the judgment. That's part of John's ministry. There is a judgment coming. All who are alive will face God's judgment. Please come, repent, confess your sins, turn from your sin, and turn to God. Now it's interesting here in verse 8, as John the Baptist continues to speak to these religious folk. Notice what he says. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
This is very important for us to unpack a little bit. What does this mean? Last week we looked at the difference between mere confession of sin or acknowledgement of sin versus genuine repentance. How many of us know those who have, with all sincerity, because that's all they understood, or they were just following directions from somebody else, oh, just, just tell us that you're a sinner and you'll be okay. There's, what kind of fruit comes from that? I think John the Baptist here is pointing out a very important point here in verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Admitting your fault only bears the fruit of, well, okay, I've, I've, I've purged my conscience, but I'm just going to continue to do it. The fruit of repentance, though, much different. What is the fruit of repentance? Notice here in verse 9, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. The fruit of repentance, I think, should be, this is very clear here, the fruit of repentance is very much, number one, evidence of a complete turnaround. The fruit of repentance is, wow, that person is radically different than who they were. There was the before person, and then there's the after person, and the fruit of repentance will be very obvious. There is something radically different about them. This is why repentance and baptism and salvation in Jesus Christ is not something to be taken lightly. And John's ministry here, his, his proclamation here is emphasizing the seriousness of repentance. This is not just flippant word acknowledgement of I am, okay, I did that wrong, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's not repentance. Repentance is turn from your sin. There will be fruit from that. The fruit of repentance I think, number one, when we see here in this, the fruit of repentance, number one, will, will produce a life in a person that is glorifying to the kingdom. Because when what John the Baptist is, re, is proclaiming here is, in verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is necessary for admission and acceptance into the kingdom. And the first fruit of repentance is that you are now part of a grand kingdom of God. You're no longer in your own little cell. You're no longer in your own little world. You are now part of something that is not of you alone. It is of God and for everyone he brings into the kingdom. That's the first fruit. The next thing here, and part of this coming into the kingdom, I think, ties directly into what John the Baptist is doing. What is his ministry focused on? It's clearly focused on repentance, but this repentance is symbolized by baptism in the River Jordan. What is the first fruit of repentance? Baptism. The first fruit of repentance, according to John's ministry, is come to the water, wash yourself clean, stand before the Lord in holiness as He washes the sin from you. It's not like the waters have some magical purpose. It's not like that they just somehow the waters will literally, physically wash sin out of you. 
It points to the spiritual reality of what God is doing in the heart and the life of the person. God, through His mercy and His grace, is washing them clean and making them new. That's so beautiful, isn't it? And so the first fruit of repentance must be baptism. Now, there's a different trains of thought here within the Christian tradition of, okay, at what point does a new convert to Christ, when do they be baptized? Do we like take them through a class? Do we kind of take them through a catechism to make sure they're saved first before we baptize them? There is a rich tradition in that, and I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. But what I'm seeing here in the text is clearly it's an immediate thing. That's what we see in the, in the New Testament. Whenever someone comes to faith in Christ, whenever they are converted from that old person to the new person, we see in Scripture an immediate baptism. There is no waiting. Again, I can see arguments for waiting depending on the circumstance and the person. I can see that to a point, especially if there is doubt whether or not that person is genuinely converted. I think some wisdom there needs to come into play. It's a, it's a situational call. But man, if somebody's on fire for the Lord and it's obvious they want to get baptized, why well, tell them no? <laughs> hey, let's get it. Let's get you wet. <laughs> let's get you baptized because that's the first fruit of a genuine repentant conversion. The first fruit. And it bothers me that, that we have Christians now that, that just take the importance of baptism and they just, they just sweep it under the rug. Oh, it's not important, so why should I bother? Now, I agree, baptism is not what saves you. We don't see that here. We don't even see that in, in Jesus' ministry. We don't see that the emphasis of baptism is a requirement before God forgives you. Baptism is the physical fruit, that witness of the changed heart to everyone. I am dead to myself and I'm alive in Christ. But it is the first fruit and I would argue the first step of obedience to conversion in Christ. So let's baptize them. Now, this is a good segue and a little bit of encouragement to you guys we don't have to go down to the river anymore to baptize. We have been blessed with the plumbing in this church. We have the plumbing set up right here now, and we have a baptistry that we can pull out, and we can fill it up with nice, lukewarm water to make it easy for everybody. These folks were getting baptized in a cold, nasty, muddy river, but they were loving it. We can baptize anyone who says, Pastor... The Lord has radically changed me. I want to obey and I want to follow in baptism. We'll do it. You just let me know by Saturday. We'll get it set up. Amen? We can do that. If somebody in a church service says, the Lord has changed me and radically changed me, you know what? We can still go out that door after the service and go down to the river too. That's fine too. But baptism is important. That's the thing I want to emphasize here. That's what we see clearly in John's ministry. It is Baptism is practical. It is immediate. Baptism is this biblical, visible, public picture of a saving identification with Jesus Christ and identifying I am now part of the kingdom. That's what it is. That's what John the Baptist is doing here. The second fruit. 
The second fruit of repentance, I think, is that Christians must live an overflow of faith in Jesus Christ. That is the second fruit of repentance and coming into faith in Jesus Christ. This is the death to self and life to Christ. Christians must actually live this overabundance of faith in Christ to the point that everyone around them is so infected by it that they too will come to repentance. And God uses that overflow of abundant faith in Christ through the Christian. You know those crazy new Christians that are just so naive, they don't know any better, and they just babble and babble and babble because they're excited about what has happened in their lives? Hallelujah, let's keep them encouraged and let that overflow come because that'll help us who've been in the faith for a while too motivate us to proclaim the gospel and what God has done for us through his son. Hallelujah. That overflow is a fruit of repentance. Anyone who goes through a conversion like this of repentance, if the fruit of that is, oh, woe is me, I'm just a pitiful poor soul. Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. How appealing is that? Now, there is, there is that aspect of understanding our depravity and sin. There, that is clearly part of, of the conviction of sin and clearly a part of the repentance from sin. But once we've been washed clean, let's understand our need for a Savior. But Lord have mercy, is the fruit sour grapes or is it something joyful? And wow, look at what God has done. Amen? It's an overflow. The third fruit of repentance, I would argue, is this. Christians must proclaim the good news. If they have repented of their sin, if they have been washed clean of their sin, and they have been made new creatures in Christ, then proclaim the good news happily, joyfully, everywhere you go, every chance you get. Now, I want to also state a disclaimer here like I did last week. In our membership class, we have talked today about evangelism and proclaiming the gospel as part of a healthy church member. I didn't get this from the book, Bill. I mean, this was part of my sermon preparation long before we talked about this in the class. So it's wonderful how I've watched God over the last two to three weeks kind of harmonize everything being taught in our Bible study time and the children's Sunday school time. Even Rhonda and Joy have been telling me some things that they're teaching the children goes right in line with what we're talking about in the sermon that Sunday. Is that not evidence of God working amongst us? Yes, That's amazing. And so Christians must proclaim the good news. Proclaim that the heavens, that the kingdom of heaven has come and that the kingdom of heaven is now. And look, I'm a part of the kingdom. Come along with me and let's go be a part of the kingdom too. Lastly, part of this proclaiming the good news, just like what John the Baptist is doing here, it's a, it's a declare, declaration and, and plea for those to repent, to join the kingdom of heaven, to turn from their sin and turn to the kingdom of heaven. But along with that, repentance means that there is also a judgment. That is an important part here of John's ministry. Because that's what he says in verse 7 of chapter 3, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He declares here in in verse 10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the, the evidence of a genuine repentant conversion is that the fruit will be sweet and prosperous for the kingdom. 
Yet if the fruit of the convert or the declared child of God does not bear good fruit, that's evidence of no genuine conversion at all. And that's what I want to emphasize here. This is not emphasizing an emotional response to anything like so many evangelists have done over the centuries. And as so many people in the church expect from their pastors, they want a friend, a stirred up frenzy. And if the pastor's not stirring up the frenzy, we need to fire him and find somebody else. What's important here is what John the Baptist is declaring. He is emphasizing genuine repentance, not an emotional response. And that's one thing here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church that we teach, that we encourage, that we emphasize in our membership, in our uh, our worship together. We expect genuine Christian family here. Amen? Amen. Everyone that I have talked to who have come through these doors and they're sticking around with us, it's a common theme I'm hearing from everybody. And it's really kind of the same language too. Everyone keeps using that language of genuine. I hope that we as a church remain that. I hope that we guard that treasure of being genuine children of God and a genuine family of God where we do not have facades and gossip and politics and, and, and disharmony. I, I, my prayer is that this church would continue in the blessings of God where we not only are genuine together as a family, but that we're genuine individual children of God. Yeah. Not playing games. Because the kingdom of heaven is too important for us to water down. The kingdom of heaven is too important for us to put on a show every week. It's more important that the heart sees the need for repentance, sees their need for salvation and mercy from God, and they come to Christ so that they can be forgiven and washed clean. And then the baptism is that first step of open repentance, and a visible death-to-self life in Christ. Now, I want to close with this thought, though. Notice here in, th- in what we see here, what John the Baptist is doing, we see the importance of baptism. Number one is, is the mode of baptism is that he's clearly in a river. Now, we don't know how deep the, this section of the river was. We don't have that detail, and I don't think it's important to know. But clearly, the image here is of going under the water. And that's the method that we practice here. We go under the water. The word baptizo in the Greek literally means to submerge, to immerse under. So number one, I think the method is important. But the second thing here is, notice here the warning that John the Baptist gives to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Why is he warning them? He's warning them not to depend upon their birth into a tradition. Because they put their faith in the fact that they've been born into the Jewish tradition, so they must automatically, their birthright is their salvation. How do we then apply this to the act of baptism? 
There are Christian traditions of baptism called paedo-baptism where children are christened or baptized as infants or young toddlers because they have been born into a Christian family. So here's my caution here. If John the Baptist warns the Pharisees and Sadducees against their faith in being of their birthright, are churches today who practice paedo-baptism doing the same thing? We're baptizing the infant because they have been born into a Christian family. That's the argument. We are baptizing our children out of obedience to the Lord because my salvation as the parent is automatically what the child is born into. That's a caution. And, and I say that in love because I have many friends who believe in paedal baptism. It's actually coming back amongst many of the younger generations of parents. Even in the Baptist tradition, there is uh, argument stirring right now for Pedo-baptism, let's go ahead and baptize the children in the Baptist tradition, in the Baptist churches. I would argue that's a scary thing to go down. That We don't go down that road. Out of love and caution, we don't want to fall into the same trap that the Pharisees and Sadducees were in. You see, if we place our faith in birthright, rather than faith in God's mercy and forgiveness through His Son, Jesus Christ, then have we? is there a genuine repentance here? See my caution? And so I think that's, a, that's definitely something clearly to be aware of and to think about. Because John the Baptist here is proclaiming a very important message. But one thing to remember that we, as we transition into the next section of Matthew chapter 3 next week and into the rest of Matthew, let's understand too that John's baptism was merely his ministry, and a very important ministry that God proclaimed and God established for preparing the way for true salvation that Jesus Christ was ushering in. And even John the Baptist acknowledges that, and, and we're going to see that later, as John the Baptist declares, I must recede, I, I must decrease, and he must increase. We'll get to that in the coming weeks. But notice here that we can still see from John's example of baptism very important aspects of how we practice that now, how we look at it now, and what is the important role of conversion in Christ. Amen? Musicians, if you'll come on forward. I want to close with this understanding and and a call for us all to do some soul searching. It's always important. As Christians from, that's why we gather together every week to worship, right? That's why we gather together in midweek to encourage one another. That's the, that's the beauty of being, of coming into being baptized into a community of believers. We're not baptized into Lone Ranger Christianity. We're baptized into a collection of the faithful. <laughs> and we encourage each other and we hold each other accountable and we love each other and, and we, we examine each other when necessary. As we close out our time here, and as we sing this last song, where do you stand in relation to the Lord today? We've got some in this room that have never followed in believers' baptism. We have some, and the reason is they have genuinely not repented and been converted. The Holy Spirit has not changed them into a, a faithful, genuine Christian yet. Doesn't mean that He won't. <laughs> But we continue to pray for one another. 
You may be a Christian and, and you've walked the Christian life for many, many years, but maybe you're in a season right now of distance from the Lord. Maybe you're saying, dear God, I don't hear your voice anymore. Why? That, that, that requires a lot of soul searching. Not guilt, not shame, but just honest reflection. How close am I to you, Jesus? <laughs> I, want to, I want to ask you that as we sing this last song together, if you need to come and pray, come and pray. If you need to pray where you're at, pray where you're at. If there's some business you need to do with the Lord, now's the time. And we'll love on you if you need it. We'll encourage you if you need it. But let this time of ending our time together uh, in our worship be that. Just reflect on the love of Christ. And where do you stand in relation to that? Amen.